all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they you've got to get them off welfare. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, our leftist car podcast. My name is Bryant, and today we've got the full crew, Brandon, Connor, and Zach. And we also have a guest. Uh, an extra Zach. An extra Zach. We have a guest, uh, Zach um, Hayden, uh, a.k.a. the Mad Redneck of the Automotive Free Clinic. Uh, how are you doing, Zach? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Yeah, great. So we're going to do a little interview with uh, Zach here in a little bit about his experience running the Automotive Free Clinic and just some of the, his, uh, his story of his uh, leftist journey. But um, before we do that, we're going to do some Project Car updates. And I think, uh, Zach, as the guest, uh, you should go first. So is there anything that you've been working on your personal car, maybe not a, a customer car lately? So my personal car is a 1985 Toyota 4Runner. Nice. And I just put uh, gears and a locker in the rear end. So now it drives like terribly on the street, but <laughs> it'll accelerate a lot faster. Um, my you put aunt, t- taller gear in there? Yeah, put it had 430s from the factory and I put 488s in it. Nice. Um, it was a. Mar- I bought the Marlin Crawler setup third member, and I just took out the old one and slapped a new one in there. I didn't set them up myself or anything like that. I think it's like eight hundred bucks for the the gear kit, and it was like eleven hundred bucks for the already set up gears. And I'm like, yes, I'll pay three hundred dollars for somebody to set my gears up for. Me. <laughs> yeah, I don't. For I, sure. I would do the same. <laughs> Dude, if it was like 50 bucks extra, I still would have just been like, I can do this myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, man, I'm really annoyed because I have a new amp and it's like on the fritz already. So that's what I've been working on. I also put some wire looms. I'm kind of getting to the point with my truck, uh, which is affectionately known as the Redneck Convertible. <laughs> I, Hold on, I'm I feel like there's... I need some context there. Did you cut the roof off or? Well, 85 forerunners have removable tops and I put a soft top on it, a killer toy soft top on it. And, uh, so it has a convertible top. That's awesome. Um, very yeah. cool. Very, very cool. I, yeah. I like that. It's really, it's a really cool truck and it's getting, it's, I've done a bunch of work to the engine. I put a new transmission in it. I've d- done a ton of work to it. I'm probably like ten thousand dollars underwater under it on it by now. Oh no, you me- you messed up the second you started keeping track. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I, it's getting to the point where it's like where I want it to be. Really, all I got to do is extend the front drive shaft and put gears in the front, and it'll be right where I want it to be. So I'm extremely pleased with where my truck is at right now. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Nice. <clears throat> now we need to figure out the order of everyone else. <laughs> because we right. did not plan this out. 
uh, let's uh, do I'm... alphabetical, and we should probably uh, once again uh, remind uh, you know Redneck what, what, what we actually are talking about when we refer to our cars too. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. All right. Well, I I uh, I ripped some of the interior out on my '75 uh, Chevy van. That wasn't really like a big deal. That was just I'm redecorating my house, and weirdly, some of the furniture from my van worked really well inside my house. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. How does that work? Uh, I had actual furniture inside my van, like a <laughs> recline, like a, an armchair and shit. <laughs> <laughs> like it fit the motif, but it was definitely like just house furniture. Nice. <laughs> um, I, my my '67 Cutlass Supreme is running and driving now. Uh, I have yet to go through and rebuild the carburetor, but I, I, I did figure out that it's just the primary circuits are clogged up. And I think rather than even try and clean them up, I'm just going to like throw together a holly to put on it because I have enough spare parts to throw a holly on. And uh, most of my work this week, I worked on my Ford and most of it was maintenance. um, So like nothing too interesting. I still haven't been able to check my oil because I broke the handle off of my dipstick. But I have good oil pressure, so that means there's oil in there. (laughs) (laughs) But I also, because I don't know, like... Y'all can confirm or, or deny. I don't know. It seems to me like all of the parts places are just getting worse and don't have anything. Oh, that's uh, de- definitely true. Okay. I, I mean, it's yeah. the parts quality has gone off the cliff and the supply chains are in shambles and you can't get anything anymore. They're doing a, they're like literally doing the like just in time shipping and stuff that we've talked about. Like, Cause I was just working at a part store and I, they would have, I was like working there. I'm like, what the fuck? They don't have anything here in the back. I'm like, they don't have this normal ass shit. And it'd be like, Oh, well this store has it. So what they're doing now is like, they're spreading their parts among every conceivable store in the area. Yeah. It's like, dude, what the fuck? That is such a pain in the ass. Yeah, no, that's, it is definitely a thing. Well, I, I know I needed a piece of engine seven eights like flex pipe exhaust. Now I, I know flex pipe is dog shit, whatever. But my exhaust was clean, broken in half, and uh, I'm gonna get around to just welding up a new pipe for it soon. My, this is the van with side pipes, so it's uh, a straight six. So like it's basically just a T pipe with an elbow in one point. Like it should be the easiest thing to weld up in the world. So I'm, it's like not daunting to me. Like exhaust kind of like fucks with me a little bit. I'm, I'm reluctant to can, commit. Like I have had two friends recently asking me to build exhausts for them. And I'm like, no, that sounds like a nightmare. But for this, it, it seems really easy, easy. But I needed a quick patch because my girlfriend was complaining about the fact that like obviously exhaust fumes were just pumping into the van and it was really loud. And there was not an inch and seven eighths flex pipe to be found at any parts store near me. And I know that that's like a slightly weird size, but it's a good slip fit for inch and three quarters exhaust. And I have bought them before at two different yeah. parts stores and uh, nothing. And I, I like I cobbled together such a mess. This was like my, my the apex of my redneck fixes because it ultimately just boiled down to like a cut up beer can and tiger tape. <laughs> I almost wonder was the beer can even necessary? Cause like in the same section as like the tiger tape, they've got like little metal sheeting or whatever you can, you can use. Beer can, I feel like you made the choice to go with the beer can. Beer can is much cooler. <laughs> it is cool. Yeah, right? Beer cans are free. 
I mean, all you got to do is drink a beer, and then you have the part. So I didn't make know, any sort of things. I bought like three different batches of parts, being like, I can cobble something together with this. And when all was said and done, it there there was still a, a gap that needed bridged. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not leaving my fucking house again. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah. Good There's there's some hose clamps on there too because I didn't have any any like actual like exhaust clamps that fit right. <laughs> For the record, I uh, I once tried using a beer can as a head gasket on my moped and that did not work. Uh, huh. it, it blew through that real quick. Yeah, I actually <laughs> wouldn't think that would work. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. <laughs> some someone was talking about doing that and I'm like, I'll give it a try and yeah. That no. seems like something you learned from the lemons racing team, right? Like that's a thing that they've actually tried there, isn't I it? I mean, close. I mean, the the moped forums are basically like lemons, but more crust punk. <laughs> yeah, know? I was I was gonna say I've I have not been reserved about my love of moped people. <laughs> They're like, a unique species. Oh yeah, I I have had some fascinating interactions with with moped clubs. Yeah. Which is to say that they were so drunk I couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's uh, since we're being like somewhat prompt this week. That's that's everything I worked on of of my own. I I, I spent a fuck ton of time working on my friend's van. It is an electrical nightmare. Yeah, Ugh, yikes! Don't buy vans made after the seventies or something. <laughs> I, okay, <laughs> well I guess it's uh, my turn then. Um, yeah. So I've been busy on a few things. Um, I've been trying to work for like half an hour to an hour every night after work on my uh, 1986 Toyota MR2. So I've got one co- one corner completely disassembled and I pressed the, bu- the bushings out of the suspension so I can put the new um, poly bushings in there. I'm going to, you know, grind off the rust and sort of prime and paint those parts a little bit to, you know, prevent any rust. Uh, so I still haven't done that. And I still need to do um, press out the wheel bearing on that side. Uh, and then I'll start on the next side. And then on my um, Sabaru, I uh, just put new tires on it, put the summer tires on it. Um, but it's been raining a lot here. And I think that is causing a electrical short or a grounding problem. And so it's running rough right now. So uh, at least I hope it's a, a grounding problem. That's what I was talking with Zach about the other day. And he, he was telling me that Subarus have terrible grounds. So I'm hoping it's that and not something more expensive. But then... Uh, yeah, I didn't, know just... that that, I didn't know that you were talking like that it was seemingly affected by the rain. That's, I mean, that that's when it started, was when it started raining a lot here. Hmm. So I don't know if that's connection, but possibly. Correlation is not causation. Yeah. I mean, it could be the engine is about to explode. Who knows? <laughs> um, and for reference, this is my 2005 Saab 92X Aero, which is basically mechanically identical to a same year uh, Subaru WRX. So... One of those little badge engineering fun things that GM did when they owned both companies or, uh, you know, enough of a stake. Yeah, it was one of the capitalism doing uh, innovation, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's the same thing in a different wrapper. <laughs> Capitalist innovation. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, they they all they're really good at innovating packaging. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm reminded of that video that Street Fight Radio did a couple years ago for Means TV. That's like, you know, you got twenty different kinds of breakfast cereal and they're all made of corn. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just in different shapes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But wait, Brett, when you go to the grocery store, you have almost unlimited choice. You can buy a hundred different types of cereals. All made from the same stuff with different <laughs> graphics on the outside. All corn. It's basically just a bunch of boxes of corn. That's capitalism. Oh, but then uh, yesterday, uh, me and Zach went out to the 24 Hours and Lemons race out at High Plains Raceway out in the middle of nowhere, Colorado. Um, and that was cool, except as we were leaving, I just got back from the tire shop and I had two sets of keys to, you know, give one of them to the the tire shop people. And um, I locked the set of keys with my house keys in my house Uh oh! as we were like loading everything out. And so uh, thankfully, Zach had a, a drill in his car. And so we drilled the lock on my front door. Oh, no. <laughs> we just had to do some light breaking and entering. Yeah. <laughs> it's cheaper than a locksmith, I suppose. Yeah, that's sure. that was my logic. <laughs> so, I mean, the deadbolt still works. So, you know, no one's going to break into my house, hopefully. Uh, but, yeah, I'll, I'll have to fix that one of these days when I have time. Yeah, you get around to it. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I got I got that to work on, got my Subaru, got my Toyota, and I got to edit the podcast. So, you know, got to fit all that in there so somewhere. Yes, you're going yeah, so to be using the deadbolt for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I got to plant my garden. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see when that all gets done. I mean, doorknobs are pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just got to go to the store and buy it and have time to install it and all that yeah and plan to do it and everything like you got to set aside like an hour to do it even though it's gonna take you five minutes right oh see the last time i did one i set aside five minutes to do it and it took me an hour <laughs> <laughs> that's how my car work usually goes yeah and then i said it's okay i'll get to the one for the the back door uh, later this week and that was six months ago <laughs> <laughs> right but uh the lemons race was cool um we'll have some pictures up in the show notes about that. I guess, I don't know if you call it the highlight or the low light of the day, uh, was, um, uh, when my friend Kevin, his uh, truck flipped over on its side. Oh, so, no. uh, he wasn't driving it. It was one of the arrive and drive guys. And, um, it was, it's been wet. It's been raining a lot. So it spun out, hit the dirt and just tipped over on its side. Um, yep. no one was hurt. And actually, uh, last I saw the, the truck was back up and running, uh, just slightly wrinklier on one side. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but uh, they have good safety equipment in Lemons, so there was, you know, and he wasn't going fast or anything. It just literally just tipped over. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's what you get for racing a, a pickup truck. It's going to be a little top-heavy. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think everything else was going pretty well. I, I did see there was a Mitsubishi that had been wrecked pretty hard there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anyone else... May, I think someone was staying a Mercedes ran into the wall pretty hard. But uh, I don't think anyone was hurt. And then we hung out there for the... A little bit for the, the pit party that they have after the 
track is cold. So, you know, there's like a potluck and people are doing um, alcoholic milkshakes and stuff like that. So uh, it's a it's an interesting time. If you uh, if you have the chance to go to a lemons race, I would I would uh, recommend it just to go as a spectator and check it out. If you're not sure if you want to race or not. Yeah, for sure. uh, That was my first time at a lemons race and that was a ton of fun. Definitely highly recommend it. So, yeah. Good shit. Cool. So, uh, Connor, I think that's you. All right. Um, So I I wasn't even here last week, so I kind of a lot. But uh, like I said, I'm going to keep it brief. I think I can't remember if I mentioned on the air. So stop me if I have. But I went drifting um, a couple of Tuesdays ago. Did I mention that on the air yet? No, I don't think so. No. Okay, so I went drifting. Um, this, which I did post a little bit on the social media. Uh, this was the one where someone did go out in a Subaru Outback and try and drift it, and that didn't work. And went, and it went great. <laughs> <laughs> it went. Uh, it understeered a lot. Um, I'm guessing it was just somebody like driving their, you know, support car or whatever they drove there in, you know, or friend's car or whatever. Um, I'm sure they brought a, re- a real drift car as well, but. So anyway, it was a it was a Tuesday night. Um, so they run them every week, twice a week, and they run like kind of an easy layout on Tuesdays. Um, so I showed up for a Tuesday night just to get some seat time, um, and felt pretty good. I mean, the car was mostly cooperative, and yeah, I felt like I was really getting the hang of it again. I, I even got got a chance to like do some practice with like left foot braking and stuff. So it was overall it was a successful trip. Um, so that was pretty great. Then after that, I did buy some new coilovers. Um, I just haven't installed them yet. I've got a. I'm gonna do that in I think uh, two weeks. I'm gonna have a Saturday in between drift events because I'm drifting next Saturday, and then two weeks after that, I'm drifting at the fancy track up in um, uh, Shawano, Wisconsin, U.S. Air. So that's like the big drift day. So I'm gonna kind of try and do my coilovers um, in that week between them. So on a future episode, I'll talk more about the coilovers because I got some things to say about that. <laughs> um, so just as a little preview, I decided to go with Stance XR1s. And just looking at them, they're pretty sick. They're they are definitely better than my BCs. So stay tuned for a little bit more on that. Oh, and uh, Brian just uh, reminded me that I did not say what my car was. <laughs> um, so I'm talking about my 2003 Nissan 350Z weeks yeah so it's it's fun um uh so anyway yeah drifting went well got some new coilovers and then uh yesterday i was doing my oil change and diff fluid change uh cleaning up the garage a little bit but the other thing i had to do was i i went under to um check out some of the suspension because over the last couple of weeks i've heard a little bit of a clunking here and there like in the front end it would be like when I'd get out of my driveway or something, I'd hear just a little clink. And I was like, mm, that's concerning. So I went under there with a pry bar um, yesterday and I was looking around and looked at the driver's side and it was all good. I couldn't, you know, get anything completely out of place. And then went to the, over the passenger side where I discovered that uh, I'm looking at stuff. And of course, my brand new brake caliper was leaking fluid. I I think it's just because it wasn't tight enough, maybe. Um, So I tighten things up, and I hope that kind of takes care of that. But, you know, we'll see. I I was able to tighten it a little bit, so that was probably what it was. So anyway, got a chance to, um, you know, 
tighten that up. And then, um, you know, of course, I started to mess with the pry bar. And then I looked right above me at the control arm, the like front lower control arm um, where the shock attaches. And I, it's just the bushings completely blown the fuck out so bad that like the base of the control arm is pushed up like an inch or two out of place. Uh-oh. Oh, uh, Jesus. Now, look, that's kind of normal on these cars. Like once that bushing goes, it just lets the it just fucking lets go. And so wherever that control arm goes, it goes. So I found the source of the clunking. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that um, I'm still going to drift on it until I fix it. <laughs> um, we would expect I, I, nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I called the parts store. I, I'm going to go uh, probably either later today or, or tomorrow. I'm going to uh, go and pick up uh, a replacement for the control arm. It's only like 100 bucks. Um, but yeah, I'm going to fucking drift on it. And then once I change the coilovers, I'm going to change that control arm at the same time. So, you know, it's me being me. <laughs> so that's... That's really all I got uh, for right now. But uh, yeah, drifting's going well. It's it's that time of year. And so far, I've been very lucky to be able to get out to the track a little bit. So I'm, I'm very, very pleased with that. But uh, anyway, I'm, that's I'm all I got. I'm just jealous you were able to find the clunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish yeah, I could I looked... find any of the clunks in my Ford. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, seeing it definitely made me feel a lot better. I was like, okay, I know where it is. Now I'm not going to worry about it for a little while, but I can see it. That's all I need to know. Yeah, so. I'm I'm never sure if I if I have like a clunk or a rattle in my car or if it's just the pavement around here is terrible. You oh, know? yeah, I ha- I constantly have that. Just every sound is like a potential issue. Right. For me, it's like, <laughs> is that a new clunk or is that just a broken part of the frame that I'm not worried about? <laughs> <laughs> Which, to be clear, is not like a hyperbole. It's literally true <laughs> uh well on that note zach uh what uh what you been up to oh man uh, not a whole lot uh my latest project was obviously if you've been listening my uh sti swapped 2011 super wrx hatchback got all the kinks worked out i think uh it's been going really good for the last couple weeks so i haven't really had much to work on uh i did trade some old WRX wheels that I had uh, to somebody who had some STI wheels. So now I've got some gold BBS wheels on my uh, WRX. Yeah, from like a 2004 to 2007 STI. Uh, They look pretty sweet, if I do say so myself. Yeah, Bryant has seen it in person and got Bryant's stamp of approval. So that's what really counts. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I also have a clunk, though. I have not had a chance to look into it yet. I'm hoping it's just a ball joint, but uh, I'm a little disappointed because all of the suspension components came off of that SCI that I robbed for parts, and it only had like 75,000 miles on it, and now there's a clunk in my suspension. So I don't really know what it I mean, could be, but I guess... It was also in a head-on collision. So. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is <sucks>. true. <laughs> that is a good point. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it wasn't necessarily a head-on collision, more of a, uh, a head-to-side collision, I guess. <laughs> a glancing blow. <laughs> a glancing blow, yeah. yeah. Just enough to total the car. Just enough, yeah. Well, <laughs> enough to bend the frame rails 90 degrees. So... <laughs> got smacked pretty hard uh that is is a good point 
but yeah, no, I mean, all the suspension components looked good when I put them in. So <laughs> I'll have to get in there and start like Connor did fucking around with a pry bar and seeing what's loose and what I can wiggle around. Um, hopefully it's just like a ball joint. Uh, it doesn't sound too bad and it's pretty, uh, sporadic. It's not like all the time. Yeah. We'll see what that is. Hopefully nothing too serious. Um, other than yeah, that, I haven't really be. been doing anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How bad could it be? Yeah. And, I mean, uh, you, you might've already thought about this sec, but, uh, one thing that I didn't really think of until, I don't know, I'm, it, it took me a while to figure this out is if you're looking for a clunk in the suspension and it's in the rear, make sure you turn off, put down the parking brake because <laughs> <laughs> it'll kind of hold things a little more solid than they would be normally. You know, yeah. 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 that's that is a good point. I think I'm fairly certain this is on my front passenger side. It's where it sounds like it's coming from. OK, but, uh, if I can't find it there, yeah, I'll have to look around other places and that's a good tip in general just you know if you're messing with stuff on the rear end make sure that you know your parking brake's not on holding things in place yeah i think that's about all i had i have not done any work on my 2004 audi s4 or my 93 ford ranger both of them have just been sitting because they're both gigantic paintings in my ass and i don't want to fuck with them <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't touched them. I feel you. It's so easy to do difficult work on a vehicle you're excited about compared to easy work on a vehicle you just don't are over dealing with. Yeah. I also have difficult work to do on <laughs> vehicles that I'm sick of. So it's uh, extra hard. Yeah, I was I more meant it figuratively, but yeah, literally it, it, that's much worse. Yeah. I got to replace a transmission on that 93 Ford Ranger and I, I'm dreading that with every fiber of my being because I've already done it twice. So yeah, not looking forward to that at all. I say, just take the fucking wheels off, dig a hole in the yard, put it in there and turn it into a planter. <laughs> Honestly, that's probably the most cost effective solution. At this point. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> uh, if it was the engine that was the problem, I would tell you to be like those guys that put the uh, Harbor freight, like one cylinder motors in them. Yeah. <laughs> so it tops out at like 30 miles an hour. Yeah. If only I wish Harbor freight sold transmissions. I'd put a Harbor freight transmission in it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably be higher quality than the piece of shit Ford transmission. That's in there right now. So. <laughs> I've, I've, I've said a million times at this point that I, I actually think that Harbor freight's quality has been improving significantly. It really or, has, honestly. I think so. Maybe I have a everything Harbor Freight else welder. Has been... Sorry, what? I was just going to say, I have a Harbor Freight welder, and that thing fucking... I mean, it sticks shit together. It does its job. Yeah. I, I was working on my friend's van today with a ratchet set that I didn't recognize the brand, but it said on the thing, like, lifetime warranty and everything. And I'm like, dude, where'd you get this? And he's like, oh, that's Harbor Freight's, like, middle tier ratchet set now. And it was pretty nice. Yeah. It ratcheted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, on that note, I suppose probably time to start uh, getting getting a little more into our interview here. Yeah. Is it all right if we take a quick break? That is all right with me. All right. Let's do that real quick, and uh, I'm going to use the bathroom, and we'll come back in a second. 
All right, I'm gonna grab a drink myself. All right. All right, we're back from our union mandated break, and uh, <laughs> we're back here uh, chatting with um, Zach Hayden uh, of the Automotive Free Clinic. Uh, and I forget exactly where in Alabama is that? It's in Prattville, which is a small rural town outside of Montgomery. Okay. And Montgomery is not that big anyway. So it, that gives you, it's, so, it's like a suburb of, of Montgomery, which really doesn't have suburbs. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. So I think we'll start off with a few uh, interview questions that are, you know, a little bit more getting to know you and then we'll learn a little bit more about the automotive free clinic uh, as we go along. So uh, you're already talking about your Toyota um, 4Runner, but uh, do you have any other dream cars? Like what would you put in your dream three car garage? Yeah, Definitely a 2024 Toyota Tacoma Trail Hunter edition. Oh yeah. Those, <laughs> those things are looking pretty hot. Oh yeah. Those are the ones with the like suspension in the seats, right? Those no, that's the TRD Pro. The Trailer oh, okay. Edition comes with old man emu suspension and lockers, if I'm not mistaken. Oh damn! From the factory. From the factory, old man emu suspension from the factory. Yeah, and wow. ARB bumpers, and it's like it's like tricked out. The other one would be a 1985 Toyota Celica Supra. Oh and, nice! Oh yeah, good choice. That, I'm a big Toyota guy. I, I'm, I love Toyotas. And then the last one would be a 1977 Toyota Chinook, which is a camper. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well, that was a, a camper based on what platform? The, just... Helix, the Helix platform, um, the truck Helix platform. So I had a friend who just sold what I think is that. Really, it was this enormous camper, dually rear, and it was a first gen Toyota pickup uh, yeah. cab. Yeah, those things go for high, high dollar right now. I think he sold her for five or six k. Wow, Oof. I would have bought it. I would have bought it. <laughs> I, those things are going for like twelve, thirteen thousand dollars. It was gutted. Was it gutted? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was drivable. Like the person drove it away, but the camper was had nothing left in it. Yeah, I mean, really, that's kind of better. Because you get something really, if you get something that old, it's going to be all mildewy and stuff anyway. Yeah, that's why he, he gutted it himself because it was just in such bad shape. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, got, I have a buddy who, well, buddy might be a generous term. I know a guy who <laughs> just loves Toyota stuff and is always like buying and selling stuff. If, if anything like that comes through, I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know. Because we've been looking at, my wife and I have been looking at getting a camper. And I really want something like that. And in fact, my, um, so I, just to tell you, I'm writing a book called Redneck Liberation Theology. And the last chapter is going to be uh, the retelling of the gospel of, of Luke as if he was a redneck in 2023. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. He's going to live in a Toyota camper. So that's sort of, that's sort of in interesting information. So Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, are you into any uh, motorsports? Uh, do you follow any uh, racing or anything like that? Um, I do follow NASCAR a bit. 
Um, not as much as I used to because I liked NASCAR when they you could like go to the Chevy dealership and you know buy a car off the the showroom floor and drive it to the track and be competitive. Yeah. And it's it's not they're not stock cars anymore. They're you know they're basically F1 cars with you know bodies on them. So I, I'm not as big a fan as I used to be. I was a huge Dale Earnhardt fan. Um, I remember when I where I, exactly where I was when I found out that he died. So I used to follow NASCAR a lot more than I do now. I'm really into adventure motorsports, um, like overlanding. I read all the I read all the overlanding magazines. I have subscriptions to them. I read them all. And eventually, like you know, I've been talking about how my I got the redneck convertible, kind of where I want it. The next step is to turn it into an overland vehicle with like drawers and a kitchen setup and all that sort of stuff. I want to build all that stuff out in the back. So, so what is what is overlanding? If you don't if you don't mind uh, explaining, because I'm not f- super familiar. I think I can get it from context, but like, what what is it like in your words? It, it's just a fancy word for backcountry camping with a four-wheel drive vehicle. Okay, cool. So I, is it like the idea that you're going from point A to point B off-road and sort of camping along the way? Yeah, yeah. Like the Overland magazines that I get, there's people who drive from like the top of Alaska all the way down to the bottom of Argentina and wow. in like a 1998 you know, TJ. So you know it's it's really it's really like adventure motorsports is the stuff that i'm really into right now and i'm trying to get my truck where me and my wife could do a little bit more of that you know we get to camp we're so both so busy it's hard to get away but we get to camp from time to time and hopefully she'll be able to take sabbatical in a year or so and i'll be able to take sabbatical in a year or so and we can maybe go out west and explore some desert desert uh, trails and stuff yeah i um a few years ago i saw there's a youtube channel called the smoking tire and they did like a i think it might have even been like a full-length film where they did um i think it's called the back 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 road discovery route or something like that backcountry discovery route um and it's basically through uh utah from south to north yeah Love to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a really cool adventure, you know. Yeah, and uh, you're you're out in nature, and it's like you know, in the on the East Coast, it's light pollution is a big thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people think Alabama is really rural, where there's like five cities in Alabama with more than a hundred thousand people. And there's a lot of light pollution out east and out west. You know, you can get out there and you can see the Milky Way, you know, and that's yeah, just I can confirm. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to be able to do some of some more stuff like that. You know, if we could my wife and I could ever pull ourselves away from our work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. So, you know, yesterday at the racetrack, it was, you know, raining and cloudy and overcast. But if it hadn't been. You know, I've been out there when it's a clear night and you can see, you know, the whole Milky Way and everything. It's pretty amazing. Uh, even just, you know, 50 miles east of Denver um, out, in, out in the country there. Yeah, that's awesome. So 
I know now you call yourself a, a communist, but I'm curious, uh, what led you to that point? And like, were there any other political identities that you tried on in, you know, in the journey uh, to, to become a communist? Sure. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in the Church of Christ, which is a real conservative, strict fundamentalist type of uh, Christian denomination. And I was super conservative up until I started listening to Rage Against the Machine when I was like 16, 17 years old. And, you know, nice. like, you know, I'm driving down Rodeo with a shotgun. These people ain't seen a brown skin man since their granddaddy bought one. I'd never heard anything <laughs> like that before. You know, I mm-hmm. it, it was shocking to me. And it stuck in my mind. And I saw um, Rage Against the Machine play at Lollapalooza in 1996, uh, right after I graduated from high school. And then, and so I started, and then I went and I worked as a, uh, an auto technician for about seven years before I went to college. And right before I went to college, I went and saw Desmond Tutu speak. And Desmond Tutu had the same type of energy that um, Zach De La Rocha had, which was just this confidence and like, and I didn't really understand the politics of it, but I understood that whatever they were so fired up about, I wanted to be that fired up about it too, you know? And um, I, when I got in college, I started reading Marx and I like was reading Marx and I'm like reading Capital and I'm like, well, that is me because I was the auto technician. I'm like, he's talking about me. So I sort of got my autonomous um, perspective on Marx, which the autonomous perspective is that you read Marx from the point of view of the working class. I got my autonomous perspective like real naturally because I was working class and I was reading Marx in college. And I was like, hey, this is like really relates to my life. Um, And then I guess the rest is history. I've done, you know, a a bunch of work since then. I don't guess we have to go into it, but um, I guess that's how that's how it all started. That's really interesting to me because I actually grew up in the Church of Christ as well the same denomination. And yeah, I had a very similar uh, path towards communism as you did around 16, 17, getting into Rage Against the Machine and System of a Down for me and and other similarly revolutionary music really helped spur my interest in, you know, revolutionary thought and then going to college and reading more. Uh, I never finished college. I only went for a brief period, but I, you know, that helped kind of opened me up to some more revolutionary writing like Marx and others. So yeah, that's really cool. And that's, that's very interesting. Cool. I mean, the church of Christ was quite an experience. Oh yeah, for sure. It's nothing like it in the world. <laughs> is that a, is something else? Is that a Pentecostal denomination? Oh no, no, okay. <laughs> no, there's no, it's real pin up. Like there's no dancing or anything like that. Uh, we got yelled at for clapping along to a song one time when yeah, I was a kid. Yeah, and, and then if it, there's no uh, music instrumental accompaniment with the singing, it's all yeah. a cappella. And the singing is actually very beautiful. Like it I is, mean, yeah. To be, truly. to be fair about it, and I'm a pretty decent singer myself, and I got that from growing up in the Church of Christ. But 
that's the only good thing I got from growing up in the Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this one sounds real familiar. This like, I, you know, so I, I'm, an, I'm an atheist myself and, you know, grew up Catholic, but I'm an atheist. And I've often taken an interest in like how cults work and stuff. And I feel like Church of Christ is one that I've heard come up a few times. I could be wrong, but that that, and what you're saying with the no music and or the no instrumental, uh, whatever, sounds familiar to me. Yeah, it's very cult like. Um, you know, I I was I to tell you what got me out of the Church of Christ. Really, what got me out of the Church of Christ was I was 16 years old and I applied for membership into the church. And uh, I thought it was going to be a formality. And so I had to meet with the elders of the church. And man, they grilled me for like two hours. 16. Oh, God. 16 years old. And like one of the things I said, they were like, uh, is it okay to protest abortion with the Methodist church? And I was like, sure. And they were like, no, that's not right. Because if you <laughs> if you get with Methodists, that's the wrong doctrine and you might go to hell. <laughs> you know, and, they used the wrong formula and got the- or the, the right formula and got the wrong answer because because it is not correct, but only because they're protesting abortion. Yeah. And so I uh, they didn't let me in the church. Um, and that sort I mean, that was like the beginning of the end of my like early faith. And then I was an atheist for many years until um, I found this church in uh, Montgomery, Alabama called First Church, Christian Church of Montgomery, which is a liberation theology church. And uh, I I have fallen in love with it. I'm a deacon at the church. Um, It's it's they've helped out tremendously with the automotive free clinic. They consider it a ministry of the church. And it's like it's been real. uh, It's really changed my life, especially talking with my pastor, Pastor Shane, about liberation theology and like. You know, it's changed my perspective in a lot of ways about what the work really is. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I am now. I think I, my work in Birmingham, you know, five years ago, that my 10 years in Birmingham that ended five years ago, I sort of look back on as like a mistake. And now I feel like I have a better grasp on what, the work is really about, at least for me. And I feel I'm not nearly as miserable as I was when I was in Birmingham. That's good. And, and it sounds like, I mean, this, I'm glad to hear that um, there is a church like what you're talking about anywhere in Alabama at all. I mean, I think that's great. Yeah. More than you, there's more than you would think. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> cause, cause I'm like, all right, this is, this is, I fuck with this. This is cool. <laughs> Yeah, I um I mean uh like I uh, I grew up Christian as well and um you know to some degree still identify with that you know I I definitely um take inspiration from the person of Jesus in sort of a revolutionary way and and <laughs> funny enough I the the church I've been involved with uh, most recently is a Methodist church so I guess that means I'm going to hell but uh <laughs> <laughs> But it is a, it's a, you know, right now the Methodist church is splitting over uh, issues like um, supporting LGBTQ people. And uh, the church that I've been a part of uh, is, um, is one of the churches that chooses to support uh, queer people. 
and um and that's you know i i was talking with zach about this the other day like most of the folks there are are liberals in the best and worst ways um you know they're they're very nice people and sometimes they say some things that i'm like okay come on <laughs> but <laughs> but uh you know it, i not like in a you know um I hate these people. It's more like, oh, you, you silly liberals, you know, but no, it's, it's, uh, it's been a good, uh, time there. But, uh, I, I guess going off that, Zach, uh, what, what is the interaction between your, what's it been like for your leftist politics and your Christianity? Like how, how are those informed each other over the years? And I guess like, what do you think maybe, non-religious people could uh take away from this um from your story i guess i would say that peace is what i have gotten out of refinding or finding my faith in the past three years i've gotten peace and i think the Bible says that blessed are the peacemakers. And I believe that my role here on this planet is to sow peace in any way that I can. And um, that doesn't just mean nonviolence, you know, or no war or no weapons or anything like that. It also means building harmonious communities across difference. It also means treating yourself fairly and justly and taking care of yourself. You know, our, our organization, automotive free clinic, I know y'all read the article and Rob Kaiser Schlotzlein, he's a really great dude, but it's not exactly accurate the way he portrayed it, which was, is like, it's a secret. Like we're doing secret leftist activism, <laughs> kind of his way of portraying it. You know, everybody knows I'm a communist, but nobody has to be like me. Like, I don't, I don't expect anybody to be ideologically like me. I expect them, our team and our community to come in, work as hard as they can to serve the customers and help people who are in need. And that process of us working together and helping people in need builds community in and of itself. Um, and people don't, people don't, as long as I'm not, you know, on a sales trip about communism, people don't care. All they care about is that we're in a poor community helping people who have very few options. And to me, that type of process is, you know, building a peaceful society um, or at least a peaceful community in hopes that it would grow into being a peaceful society at some point in the future. So yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's just it's a good model for what we think a proper healthy society might look like. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, the best way to do that is just to do that. I think instead yeah. of preaching, you know, that you have to be communist or you have to be this or that, is just to go out there and do it, which is what you're doing. And so, and the thing yeah. is, like, the communism is not incongruent with the Bible. In Acts, um, that the apostles all shared all of their goods with each other, and they shared with each other according to their need, which is almost, you know, verbatim what Mark said from each according to their ability to each according to their need. 
Right. And to me, to me, the way the disciples live in Acts of the Apostles is like a primitive form of communism. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't think when I think when you explain it that way to other Christians, and you can say, "Look, this is what the Bible says." I think when you can explain it that way to other Christians, and they know that you're not trying to do the, you know, the caricature of communism, which is like totalitarian society, you know, that sort of stuff. Like once they know this is what I'm trying to do, like specifically and explicitly, this is what I want to do. I think people are on board with it and they don't mind. It's just a word. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's just, well, and so kind of, kind of to your point here, one of the things, and I, I, don't know if i articulated this maybe in one of our other questions but um we're kind of on the topic now i'm just wondering if like there's a certain amount of like to me i just wonder if do we need to be more forward with like hey we're communists and this is what we're believe this is what we believe this is why we're doing it this is why we're helping the community this is what we're all about to help maybe change people's minds i don't know how much of that you're doing or like everybody knows you're a communist but Sometimes I'm just like, and I, I do this even with, you know, friends who don't agree with me and stuff. Sometimes they're just like to, I like to be the likable character that everyone's like, oh yeah, he's a communist. And it's like, yeah, yeah th- those are related. And I want you to know that those are related. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it just, I'm, I'm coming at it like, do we need to have better marketing? <laughs> you know yeah, what I, mean? <laughs> I, get, I get that. But to me, it's like the Bible says, you'll know the disciples by their works and by their fruit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm all about the fruit and I'm not necessarily about preaching, uh, preaching to people about, um, you know, sin or communism. That's fair. <laughs> um, I want them to see what we're doing and be like, I respect that man as a leader and I don't care what he calls himself because I respect what he does for other people. And yes. to me, to me, like, I mean, my analysis of of where we're at in global society is that um, the American empire is falling apart and yeah. we, we live in the American empire and it's going to get worse for us as the years go on. And it may get better for the Chinese. It may not. It may get better for the Russians. It may get better for the global South, whatever for us living in the United States, it's going to get worse. And, we're going to need leaders. And I don't mean leaders in a top-down way. I mean leaders as in this is the role I play in my community. Um, we're going to need leaders to be examples of how to treat people in a society that is crumbling. Yeah, definitely. Well said. That's, yeah. I mean, that is what mutual aid needs to be. It's... It's just we got to take care of each other because, you know, things are rough. Yeah. So that's beautiful. Yeah, definitely. Um, going off that, uh, in the uh, the article that I think we mentioned from uh, Lux Magazine. Um, Which will definitely it, be in the show notes. Yeah. In case, you're, uh, <laughs> in case anyone's wondering. It said that you had uh, spent some time doing political organizing in uh, Birmingham, working on development, uh, developing cooperative businesses, community land trusts, popular education, and community farming projects. Yeah. But I guess you uh, got a little bit disillusioned with uh, some of these projects. Um, 
Could you tell us a little bit more about these and, and what led you away from them? Well, I mean, I, I would say the first thing I would say, so I have schizoaffective disorder. And when I was in Birmingham, I was self-medicating with alcohol. So I was a, I was a drunk mm. when I was in Birmingham. And a lot of the stuff I did, I think, was unethical. You know, yelling at people about whiteness, being all about trying, doing things in order to be popular instead of doing the right thing. Um, so some of the work we did there was good. The community garden stuff was pretty good. Some of the anti-racist stuff I don't think was that good. But in 2015, a young um, politician named Randall Woodfin approached our organization about a strategic plan that we wrote, which would have transformed the way that urban economies work. And it was based on cooperative businesses, community land trusts, and anti-racism. And I was like, man, fuck this dude. I'm not getting involved in electoral politics. Like, that was my initial, initial sort of feelings about it. Well, this guy courted me for two years. And finally, in 2017, when the election came by, came up when it was an election year for mayor he was running for mayor he endorsed the black agenda which was part our strategic plan and part uh, a black lives matters agenda and he endorsed it and we were like oh man we we fucking won you know like we're gonna win like we're gonna freaking win and he did win he won in a landslide 59 to 41 over mayor richard errington who's this power broker Barrett Arrington's handpicked successor, William Bell. And it was a historical moment, youngest mayor in uh, Birmingham history. And I remember this one moment they were having a celebration and I walked into that celebration and there were all of these organizers and activists there and like all these people I know, my friends. And I was like, man, we're, we're going to win. Like we're literally going to win. Well, he did not do it one thing in the black agenda. And I was just like, I was like crushed. I was just totally crushed because that was like 10 years of work, like just evaporated. And I'll never get involved in electoral politics again. I, I'll never do it again. Um, it's too corrupt. It's, it's, yeah. it's just too corrupt. You can't, even, even when you win, you lose. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, and I it took me it took me probably two years to get over that. Um, and I got out of organizing. I went back to work in a shop. Um, I wasn't I didn't do any organizing for two years. And then when the pandemic came, I started organizing again. But the the thing is, is that there's always this sort of saying, which is that white people need to organize white people. And I agree with that. I don't think that white people should organize black communities. I think it's fraught with difficult power relationships. And so I decided I'm going to organize rednecks. I'm going to organize my people. And as I started organizing my people, my ideology changed because as I listened to them, I realized that the stereotypes about rednecks were not true. And so my ideology changed. And one by one, all of the organizers that I organized with in Birmingham disappeared from my life. And 
to me, I understand that I, I get it. You are committed to an ideology, and I'm not committed to that ideology anymore. But that's the problem with organizing these days, is it's not about commitment to human beings. It's about commitment to an ideology. And if you have a commitment to an ideology, then it's only about who can have the most purity in following that ideology. Whereas if you're committed to human beings, you're just friends. Like you walk with each other and you work with each other and you have conversations and you eat dinner together. And, you know, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And you don't judge them and you just try to help them be the best people that they can possibly be. And that's, that's the whole thing with, you know, it said in the thing we want to encourage good behavior for them not to be fascist. Well, that's what we do. We we encourage people to be the best people they can possibly be, and I think that is the movement. Um, I think the movement is about ethics. I think if you look at the prevailing political conditions in the United States that the one way that you can describe it is corrupt and that the contradiction to corruption is ethical leadership. And um, I've been reading Cornel West's The Ethical Dimensions of Marx and ethics are historically contingent and constructed in a dialectical situation. And I'm tr- we're trying to create an ethical dialectic in which are what we do is contradictory to the corruption at all levels of politics. Yeah. That yeah. Really well said. Sense. I, uh, I mean, I think, you know, we, as a, a, the four of us are, you know, committed to being inclusive and, and, you know, left unity. Um, you know, we all might not identify as, communist or anarchist or, uh, you know, socialist or whatever, you know, we all have our own, we're all coming from different ways, but, you know, we are, we are wanting to work together to, you know, uh, organize and create a better world, uh, in, in the ways that we can. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely identify with you on the, you know, working with, you know, electoral politics. Like I've had a taste of that with the DSA here in Denver. Um, you know, like I think right around the time I, joined was around 2017 and we had our own um uh, local candidate that was endorsed by the dsa and then uh betrayed everything uh once uh, she was in office so yeah I, i've seen that kind of same thing happen um it's it's no fun see um, like i i am very quick to decry electoral politics as ineffective for the same reasons that you know zach just explained but that being said we have had a couple of local uh people here um most notably a judge in my district who has cut uh evictions by 60 percent because his his little like pet project or his approach to uh, i'm not sure what uh i think he deals a lot with the like i don't know how the court system works that well but specifically he deals a lot with evictions or maybe he's the guy who deals with evictions and he does everything he can to avoid like actually allowing evictions. Yeah. It's, it's a hard sell to anyone to that I could explain it to, but he brought on a friend of mine who is like one of the oldest communists that I know in terms of like being like actively reading and studying and, and doing activism for decades as a 
constable, which is sketchy, but it's it's not like quite like a cop. Effectively, their duties, uh, like as he was responsible for, was was just evictions. So he did everything he could to try and cushion the process the, along the way, and there was some efficacy to it. But ultimately, it just boiled down to like somebody having to evict families nicely. Yeah, and and like I I don't mean to say that there's no room for electoral politics. Like if that's your thing and if you want to do it, you know, go ahead. Like, I mean, if you did say you just, that, I wouldn't judge you harshly. <laughs> um, you know, I, you just got to be careful about it. Like there are, there have been since 2017, you know, plenty of um, leftist local candidates that the Denver DSA has endorsed and they went on to do great work. Uh, the one I'm thinking of uh, is Candy Sidabaka, um, who has really been good at pissing off the right people. Uh, she's in the Denver city council. Also uh, Juan Marcano in the Aurora city council, all doing great work. Um, it's not work I want to do. Like I briefly tried to get involved at the very low level in the local democratic party. And it was, it was just not worth my time. So <laughs> uh, if, if that's something that you want to do is sit in boring meetings and listen to weird uh cranks at city council meetings then <laughs> by all means but uh yeah you, you got to pick your battles and and if if it the electoralism is taken away from doing actual on the ground organizing then i i think i know <laughs> what choice i would make uh, you, you mentioned earlier that uh about your you know learning about marxism in college um i know that you eventually earned a a phd uh wh what did you study in college Environmental Science, Policy, and Management. And okay. my, dis my dissertation was on my organizing work in Birmingham. Um, before I graduated from Berkeley, I uh, started Magic City Agriculture Project, which was an anti-racist and community development organization using urban agriculture. And uh, I wrote about that, and my dissertation was on segregation, gentrification, and the commons in the context of urban agriculture. So we looked at like a food policy council as a vehicle for gentrification and segregation. And then we looked at local organizations and how they were, you know, kind of in their own way building commons. Um, yeah. It wasn't explicit and it was partial, but it was there. And, you know, we sort of used the dissertation as a prima facie case for the work that we were doing at Birmingham. We were like, look, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Let's do this. So, yeah, that, that's kind of my, my experience at Berkeley was incredible. I mean, if I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't go. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was an incredible experience. I got to meet people doing wild shit from all over the world. I remember this one woman, she was like embedded with terrorists in like Indonesia or something and like writing an ethnography on them. And I'm like, you are insane. Like you are totally <laughs> an insane person. And I have, I made friends there that I've been stayed in touch with, you know, the entire 13 years since I graduated and, or 10 years since I graduated, excuse me. And, you know, there's stuff there that it, nothing's all bad, 
Um, there's stuff there that I that I got out of that that were totally transformative and changed the way I saw the world. But it was expensive, and my academic career totally failed. And probably could have learned all that stuff on my own. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I went to college and didn't get a bachelor's degree. So I, uh, you know, I can identify with that a little bit, but I, I didn't go into the sort of social sciences like you. So I don't know if that's a, a different thing. Dude, if I had it all to do over again, I would have dropped out of high school. Yeah. As, as a college graduate, I have not found my high school diploma or my college degree useful in the slightest. Yeah. You know, I, I occasionally use trigonometry in my uh, work. Uh, that's pretty valuable. But <laughs> other than that, I don't know. Fair, but well, I had to relearn trigonometry for machines. <laughs> I always I always say that high school teaches you to follow the rules. College teaches you how to enforce the rules and postgraduate teaches you how to write the rules. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one way to put it. <laughs> I have no criticisms of that. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds right to me. <laughs> you, you mentioned a couple times uh, you identify as a redneck and you work with other people that identify as redneck. Um, what, what does that mean to you? And I guess what are some of the stereotypes or mix, misconceptions about rednecks or people living in the South that you would like to dispel or challenge maybe? So a redneck is really just a worker in, in, in the most basic sense. It's a way of life that workers have. I like to consider it for myself as a worker who resists powerful forces. Um, I think the big thing that's like really people mistake or about the South is that it's like Trump country. You know, only 37% of Alabama voted for Trump, like 18% voted for Biden and the rest didn't vote. Yeah. You know, and I think what the really defining feature politically of rednecks is the belief that none of this shit works for us. Now, are there rednecks that like do fly Confederate flags and fly Trump's signs? Yeah, of course there are. Rednecks are diverse people. I don't want to put any type of like boundaries on what a redneck can or cannot be aside from a worker. And, you know, the South is not the solid red um, place that that people think it is, you know, it's like, it's a really, it's the most diverse place in the United States. Most uh, black people live in the South. Alabama's had the highest increase in Latinos of any state in the United States. You know, there's a lot of progressives in the South. There are a minority, but um, there's a lot of progressive organizations and some of the biggest movement things that have ever happened, happened in the South, right? Like, um, Highlander Research and Education Center that we talked about earlier. The SPLC is founded in the South, who keeps an eye on hate groups. Um, you know, the Civil Rights Movement was in the South. SNCC was in the South. The Black Panther Party was actually founded in Lowndes County, which is right next to Montgomery County. Um, so I thought they were founded in Oakland by like Bobby Seale and all. Nope. The first Black Panther Party was in Lowndes County 
in uh, in Alabama. Oh, hmm. yeah, yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, and you know, like all this cool, st- and the, the South is also the most uh, biodiverse place in the United States. Alabama is the most biodiverse state in the nation, um, even beating Hawaii. So, I mean, there's a lot about the South that is to like, and you know housing is cheap too so <laughs> there's a lot about it that is that is to like and if you can find your people um it's a nice place to live and i like living here and you know you got your you do have politically dominant you know retrograde nazis basically but those people don't represent the majority of the south alabama's last election 37 percent of in Alabama's last election, 37% voted Republican and 62% didn't vote at all. Yeah. So, and- yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the misconception comes from the fact that the right wing has a stranglehold on all the institutional power in most sure. Southern states. Sure. So like they, they make sure that they win the elections no matter what, even if they're only, you know, some fra- small fraction of the working class that supports them they can just wield un uh, disproportionate power that's that's very hard to unseat now that they have it yeah and i actually alabama was democrat up until 2010 and then it then it flipped republican and it but alabama's always been a one party state it was democrat from like 1819 to like 2010 and then it flipped and it's a one-party republican state and it's because of the way the institutions are set up that it's always going to be a one-party state um like alabama state constitution which was so like okay after the civil war you had reconstruction after Reconstruction ended or failed, or however you want to say that, in 18, 1877, I think it was, there was a populist movement in 1880 and 1890, and black and white workers were on the same page. Well, they would have won numerous governorships if there, if the governorships ha- ships haven't been outright stolen by the planters and the industrialists. And they wrote the 1901 Alabama state constitution with the specific goal to break the back of the populist movement and lay the groundwork for Jim Crow, which it did. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of history of resistance in the South and we need to rekindle that. But I think for me, the problem the biggest problem with progressive politics in the South is that people are reading stuff from New York and San Francisco and Seattle, and they're trying to graft those strategies onto the the context the context of the South. And I think the strategy for the South needs to be is necessarily different from the strategy of a giant metropolitan area. communism with southern characteristics yeah exactly exactly and we wrote a we wrote a paper called internal orientalism of the american south in which we argued that the south is an internal colony of the united states and that all of the workers in the south are colonized are essentially colonized subjects 
And we've argued for a solution to that from the global south, which is land reform and reparations. So land reform for the entire working class and reparations for black and indigenous people. And that political project, if we could get traction for it, would draw every all of the working class together instead of dividing them apart, which is what happens when you take, you know, New York City strategy and try to drag graft it onto Alabama. Yeah, that's okay. awesome. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of, you know, white liberals, especially from the Northeast, say, you know, really terrible things about the, the South as if it's irredeemable and should just be nuked or something like that. You know, like we're better off without it or something like that. And, you know, I, I try and remind them that it's it's really you're you're counting out millions of, of people who are disempowered and disenfranchised and, you know, not representative by their governments. So it's I don't know. I don't know what I, what else to say to those folks to, to get through to them. But don't come down here. <laughs> well you were the one who was just saying how uh housing was cheap you can't say that and not not uh, not be ready for the results of that we're all looking for cheap housing these days to give you an idea of how cheap housing is my wife and i live in a two-bedroom two-bathroom house five minutes from downtown we paid eighty four thousand dollars for the house oh my god Jesus i'll be on yeah I'm, I'm packing up the car as soon as we're done <laughs> yeah no I, i'm just kidding I, I don't like it too hot i live up north and you paid double what i did <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, before paying off my house, I very uh, I, I came very close to moving back to Georgia. So I, really? I do. I yeah. I grew up uh, about five minutes from Alabama. Cool. What? What? Where? Floyd County, Georgia. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with the culture down there. I I will I will say that like it took me longer. Uh, I I left about twenty years ago. Well, yeah, yeah, almost twenty years ago. I didn't. I didn't see any vestiges of progressivism and you know my my memory sort of betrayed me because I, like while I didn't see any vestiges of progressivism or leftism that's just not really that wasn't a phenomenon in America 20 years ago like uh leftism yeah. was dead at at the time like you know uh, you know not obviously not completely but it wasn't uh, a movement that was on the rise and now looking back, like I definitely see what everyone's talking about when people want to be dismissive of the South. I, it's, it's kind of disgusting because it's always like a bit vitriolic and, and like, oh, well, if they want to be like racist assholes, fuck them. It's like, well, sh sure, to the like few white people who have like the power to uh, be racist and like implement those policies. But what about the millions of fucking like black and brown people who are, are being victimized by those policies? Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it is a problem in the working class. The sort of animosity between black and white people is it's cultivated by leaders on both sides, and um, it's an issue. Well, when you uh, started talking about uh, you know organizing amongst your race, that's that's a hard thing to talk about, and it's real dicey of a subject. But I think you executed it well. And one of my like you know things that I really enjoy reading about and learning about is is the uh, Rainbow Coalition in Chicago in the '60s and yeah. '70s, yeah. and that's what they were doing. They were uniting races, but 
individual community leaders were organizing just in their communities. And since neighborhoods and communities are de facto organized by race because of the way things are set up, it's, it, it doesn't even necessarily, I think, have to be a matter of race. But when a community is all black, it's hard to have some white college kid come in and try and organize them. Yeah, right. that's that's just not their lane. Well, you right. spend you spend all of your time trying to prove that you can be trusted. Yeah. yeah. Now, if, if if there was a prominent white community member in a black community, go to town, do your thing, man. Like you, you're part of the community, but like, yeah, it's 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 a weird subject to have to talk about. But I do see what you're saying, and I yeah. think there's merit to it. And our our network, Iran. Um, we have black and diverse and um, white or redneck uh, organizations in the network, and they're organizing in their communities, right? Like the person in Charlotte, Marcel Villo, is organizing in the black community in Charlotte. The guy from uh, West Virginia who's doing harm reduction is organizing in his community there. And we coordinate. It's a very similar type strategy to the Rainbow Coalition, except it's all across the South instead of in one city. I mean, like, uh, hey, uh, Brian, what's what, what's the book that we've both read and discussed? And it's about con- the communist. Hammer and Ho. Hammer, Hammer and Ho. Ho. Why yeah. am I the one that remembers that? <laughs> uh, uh, Zach, would I be uh, correct to assume that you are, are, have read or at least are familiar with Hammer and Ho? Yeah, I've read it. Yeah, uh, that the Communist Party even recognized that really quickly that they were going to have more efficacy in teaching community members to organize amongst themselves rather than to necessarily try and organize them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I'm like, I'm redneck through and through, you know, I grew up that way. You know, I know the culture inside and out. I know how to talk to people. I, you know, and it, it, and it's, it's been better for me to do that spiritually because I haven't been in situations where like I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not denigrating black people in any way by saying this, but I have been in community meetings where I was asked to leave because I was not a part of that community. And that's fine. I'm not saying it, but like, that's a hard thing emotionally to deal with, you know? And I just think for me, I think, Black community, black organizers should organize black communities. Redneck organizers should organize redneck communities. And that those organizers should come together and form coalitions around common interests, such as land reform and reparations. Yeah, that sounds like a great policy to me. Yeah, Yeah, I I feel like there's there's more to it, but I largely agree. And, And like I said, it's the exact model of the Rainbow Coalition. Yep. I actually yeah. know one of the original founders of the Rainbow Coalition, Hi Thurman. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, he lives in Alabama. Yeah, I, lo- I, I love hearing him speak. Yeah, yeah I've heard a couple of interviews with him. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, he's a good dude. He and I have kind of a weird relationship because I think he thinks I'm a little bit crazy, which is not inaccurate. <laughs> um, uh, From what I've heard about him, he might have uh, had a comparable relationship in his younger years. Yeah. Not, I don't know, not relationship. Uh, uh, I don't know. My brain's fried today. It's too hot for me. But uh, yeah, he, he seemed like he might have had a wild streak when he was younger. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he did. 
Dude, they were doing crazy shit in Chicago, man. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. And it got people killed. We're going to try not to get anybody killed this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the name of his book? Our listeners in Lang- Langley may have uh, different uh, different plans for us. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, book is called... Um, well, there's... It, it ain't, it's sitting three feet from me. Let me grab it. Okay, and his his there was one book that he was in called Hillbilly Nationalists, and and then he has a new a new book out. I don't know if y'all found it. It was a Revolutionary Hillbilly. Revolutionary Hillbilly. Revolutionary Hillbilly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So there's another couple books for the the Carson Comrades reading list: uh, Hammer and Ho and Revolutionary Hillbilly. And also Hillbilly Nationalists. If you haven't read that, yeah, that's a good one. So I guess uh, we talked a little bit about the Automotive Free Clinic. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about like how it worked uh, on a day-to-day ba- business level? Sort of like um, I know it's it's sort of a um, sliding scale of, of prices based off of uh, income, and you try and um, help people in the community to to fix their own cars uh, to some degree. Um, how does that uh, generally work? Actually, if I if I can cut in here, I, yeah. I would say maybe even start from almost start from the beginning. Assume yeah. our irresponsible listeners have not already read the article that we've included in the show notes. <laughs> Assume they have not read that and don't know what the automotive free clinic is. The automotive free clinic is the mission is to keep disadvantaged and working class people on the road. And uh, we charge commercial calls for parts, which saves about 65% on markup and uh, labor is donation based. We don't means test. We have two technicians who are actually pretty good, myself and Joe Fontaine. Um, and we have a uh, office person that comes in two days a week and uh, you got to call, you got to call and make an appointment. You got to leave the car with us and we'll get to it as soon as possible. We have limited capacity. We're, we're open nine to two, uh, five days a week, you know, we don't, we're not a production shop. We're not trying to break people's backs. So we work pretty slow. Uh, but you know, we do really good work. We've had like four comebacks out of 346 cars. That's great. So fantastic. Yeah, we do pretty, we do pretty good work. You know, we run it like a business, you know, we, uh, we're professional. We treat people with respect and dignity we treat them, you know, and, you know, if they come in and they can only pay for the parts, that's what they pay for. But if they can come in and they, they can pay a little more, then we're all for it. Um, it started in 2020 when the pandemic hit as a, as basically a pandemic project, because we felt like that it was, the pandemic was going to change the world and it did. And that people were going to, people were going to need help. And uh, we started off as a mobile shop, um, fixing car people's cars in driveways and in the street. And now we're in a seven bay mechanic shop in Prattville. That's incredible. Yeah, um, we've done it almost totally by individual donations. We probably have over a thousand individual donations. We have a lot of supporters. We have 15 people who donate every month. Um, we have a couple of people that donate yearly. And we got a grant from uh, Highlander Research and Education Center, which is, you know, uh, one of the foremost progressive slash revolutionary institutions in the South. 
And, you know, we're, we're trying to get more institutional funding now so that we can expand, we can become, get a lift. We don't work with lifts. We work on jacks and jack stands. So we would like to be able to get a lift so that it would make it easier on our backs. Our other technician is 64 years old. So, you know, we don't want to wear his body out. He has a pacemaker. So, you know, we're trying to make sure we don't hurt him too bad. Yeah, I saw in the in the article where it says, oh, we work on jack stands. I was like, oh, Jesus, just like me. Oh, I don't envy the oof. Yeah. <laughs> that that lift makes a big difference. It does. Yeah, we would like to get one. And, if, you know, if, if a couple of these grants come in, we're going to be able to get one. You know, and the vision is, like, really to get the type of institutional funding we really need to be a full-service shop with a full slate of technicians um, and doing everything that you could possibly imagine uh, on a car. Changing engines, alignments, transmissions, brakes, drivability. I love doing drivability. That's my favorite thing to do. But we do drivability now. But, you know, we would really like to be a full-service shop, you know, open eight hours a day, five days a week, and really be able to serve customers and community members in the best way possible. Yeah, very cool. Have you had any uh, pushback from either folks in the community or like the, you know, local businesses that are, that maybe think that you're cutting into their profits? Has that been a a problem for you? Well, we're a member of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, Oh, that helps. Yeah, that helps. (laughs) There's There's a little tip. Get your mutual aid project on the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, we're a member of the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce really likes us. Uh, the thing is, is that most shops don't want to work on the cars that we're working on mm. uh, because we work on junk, and most shops don't want to work on junk. Can and, confirm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we're not really cutting into anybody's profits yet. <laughs> you know, we we think, I'll just put it this way and I'll leave it at this. We think that the for-profit business model of auto repair is not good for technicians or customers. And yeah, we believe we that agree. Our, <laughs> and, we, and we believe that our business model is better for technicians and customers. Um, which actually leads me to a, a question. I don't know if I included it in our list, but it was one of those things that I was wondering, are you guys entirely volunteer based or are you able to or want to start paying technicians or, or things like that? Well, kind of where are you sitting on that? We have three people that get about $14 an hour stipends a month. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're, it's, it, we just started doing this about three or four months ago. And, you know, nobody's been paid, paid before then. But, you know, we've grown, you know, and it, it's – it's just baby steps, you know. Everything is just like one foot in front of the one foot in front of the other. What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And sort of planning ahead and and sort of trying to figure out, you know, how to get the things you need to be able to do the work that we want to do. And in terms of longevity, being able to actually pay technicians is a big big thing for longevity because like Volunteer burnout happens, you know, can you always have enough volunteers? Can everybody really put aside their own lives to be there? If you can offer pay, you know, whatever it is, 
that is a huge step. So I was wondering if, if you guys were looking to move in that direction and I'm kind of glad to hear that you, that you have. I mean, we would ideally, we would have four or five technicians making $75,000 a year, which is a good living in Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say that, that would, that would be ideal. Uh, we we want to get there and I think we will get there. But it's got it's just gonna take some time and I mean as far as we've gotten in three years, if we get this far in another three years, we'll be exactly where we need to be. That's awesome. Nice. So I'm I'm curious, is the automotive free clinic sort of a social spot for people to hang out? Is that part of what you're the, the culture that you're trying to cultivate, or is it more of a, a business style? establishment is hybrid i mean we have members of our community who are dedicated to what we're doing we have probably about 10 who are really dedicated who will come up and check in with us and chit chat and you know shoot the shit with us and then we also have events like we had a grand opening and there was about 40 people there and i gave a little talk about internal orientalism to the to the members of the community, you know, not like in your face stuff, but just basic stuff. And, you know, it, it's, it can be a social place at times, but for the most part, it's a business. Yeah. Awesome. You know, when, when you mention uh, mutual aid, I, I think a lot of folks see that as sort of a, an anarchist thing. You know, I know you identify as a communist and there's not, it doesn't mean that mutual aid isn't a communist sort of thing, but, you know, in in the left of today, people kind of make that distinction. Um, is there anything that you're taking from the anarchist tradition or um, is there like a little bit of fluidity in that? Yeah, well, I'm more anarcho-communist. I'm actually like a pirate, anarchist, pirate, communist <laughs> type person. Like, I believe in, like, you know, if you've read uh, David Graeber's book, All Pirates, um, that came out posthumously, like, I really believe in that, like, self-organized systems, democracy. But I also believe that you need an economic strategy. And our economic strategy is based on cooperation and sharing. And that's the only criticism... The social stuff, the political stuff, like I'm more anarchist, but when you think about, I think anarchists sometimes don't have a strategy for how to like make shit. Um, and if you're going to have a strategy to make shit, you need to either be, I think cooperation is the strategy to build shit and make shit. Yeah. yeah I, I think, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Connor. I was just saying that makes sense. And, I think it is important to like not get too sometimes bogged down in like this particular ideology over that one. It's like, you know, I often consider myself, you know, it's like I'm a, in a way I'm a communist first. I I believe in communism as the end goal. Um, I have some anarchist leanings for sure, you know, and I think there's a lot of value in that, but like anything else, I feel like there's a lot of value in a lot of different left persuasions and we kind of have to pick and choose and use this, this or that strategy based on the material conditions that we are facing. Yeah. And that's just, I think everyone's got to be, you got to be at least a little familiar with every major tendency and you've got to take what's 
what works. And, you know, mutual aid is one of the things that fucking works, which is why, you know, communists all over the world have used mutual aid. Anarchists all over the world have used mutual aid. It's because it fucking works. It's good. It's it's helping people. That's what we're about. So, And communities have a tendency to trust you when you've, you know, dedicated significant amounts of time to helping them. Yeah. And, yeah, and in real like ways, that. not political electoral ways, but in like feeding and clothing and fixing their cars instead of like getting them to vote. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think people are suspicious of people who are trying to sell them shit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And it kind of goes back to what I think, Brandon, you were saying what something like socialism with redneck characteristics is yeah. that what you call it. Like we, you have to, adapt these things to fit in with the the local conditions or what resources you have you know that kind of thing and look not everybody in our organization sees it that way most of the people in our organization see it as a ministry Mm. i see it as a ministry myself in addition to as like a business model that could defeat capitalism yeah but a lot of and and like that's part of my like pirate anarchism pirate communism um ethic is that everybody can think about it however they want to think about it like i don't i mean as long as we're doing the work the way we need to do the work i really don't care how you think about it yeah and what you were saying before made me think like when i was doing research for an episode we did on the dodge revolutionary union movement i came across a marxist leninist group in detroit in the late 60s and 70s and uh, I found like um, some sort of letter or like a open letter or something that they had released where they were denouncing like various community members as like Kowskiites or something like that. And, it, <laughs> and it's like, all right, you read Lennon and you might've taken it a little bit too like on its face. <laughs> like it's because he was like literally just shit talking like one of his uh, peers in like <laughs> Russia and Germany and the, like early 1900s, it's okay to adapt his teachings so that they are relevant to you. Like, yeah, and and so that's that's what I'm hearing is is it's like it's okay to take an ideology. And to me, like I, I mean, I, I am a Marxist-Leninist. To me, it is okay to take that ideology on its face and accept it. But you still like uh, effectively that's what Mao did. But he had to adapt it to China, and everybody has to adapt it to the place they're at. So if you're in the South and you feel the need to adapt your ideology so that it is true to what it is and still works for the people that it's supposed to be working for, then fuck yeah, that's nailing it. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Antonio Negri. Do you know who he is? I, I don't. No. Antonio Negri uh, wrote a book on Lenin and for all intents and purposes, was a Leninist, but he became an autonomist and uh, he was imprisoned in Italy for like 13 years for supposedly helping autonomous terrorists. And he wrote a book called Empire. Uh, he and Michael Hart wrote three books called Empire, The Multitude, and Commonwealth. And it's like indistinguishable from anarchism. And this guy's like studied Leninism for years and years and years and years and years. So, but he's writing about current conditions, right? Like he's adapting, like he's doing what you're saying. He's adapting what he knows to what the current conditions, and that's what dialectical materialism is supposed to do. It's supposed to adapt to the current conditions. Amen. Yeah. Right yeah, there. Definitely. <laughs> um, 
Well, I think you answered some of the questions that we had, um, but I'm also curious, uh, like, what is your criteria for choosing uh, what cars to work on? Like, is it your, you'll take all comers or is it you have to choose, you know, sorry, we can't help you with this project or whatever? Yeah. Are there, we any, do. Por- are there any Porsches coming in for sure? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do European or luxury cars and we only do jobs that are seven hours or less. Okay. So we're not at currently, we're not changing engines or anything like that. We would like to, um, but we just don't have the capacity to do that right now. Yeah. Um, And actually, I'm sorry, if I can interrupt, I I just wanted to, because I know the article said you guys didn't take um, jobs that you felt were four hours or more. And I wanted to ask one, has that changed? Have you like taken on a little bit more? And two, what kind of jobs like were you mostly doing in that at that period of time when you were taking on you know lesser jobs, if you will? Yeah, we expanded when we moved shops. We expanded our time to uh, seven hours, and awesome. and before uh, we were doing like brake jobs, tune ups, oil changes, suspension work, um, stuff like that. I mean, so there's a lot you can do alternator changes. And, and I kind of want to like get this out for any listeners who are maybe the gears are turning in their heads for, for jobs under four hours. There's a lot you can take on for yeah. people in the community who do need help. There's a lot you can do without being a full service shop. Like it, it, it can make a big difference. And I think the article also said you guys are all only open. Um, two days a week or something. So has that also since changed? Yeah, we were open three days a week. We're now open five days a week. Awesome. So, Beautiful. Yeah, we've grown. We have. We've Definitely. Grown in the past, in the past, we moved from our three bay shop into our seven bay shop in October, November of last year. And uh, last month was our best month thus far. And we did 21 cars last month. Hell yeah. All right. That's pretty good. Sweet. Um, I forget if we had asked this already. Um, Do you have any advice for people that are wanting to, you know, do similar uh, mutual aid projects in their own uh, town? Uh, Get incorporated. Make it legal. Like get the 501c3. I know people hate 501c3 and don't want to be a part of the nonprofit industrial complex, but if you want to get tax deductible donations, you have to have a 501c3. Get fundraising software and crowdfund the shit out of it, man. Post it on every social media platform you can get it on. Um, you know, business is have something you can do and let people know about it. And the biggest thing about is just letting people know about it. If you got something you can do, just let as many people as possible know about it and you'll get the support that you need and be organized, like be organized and disciplined. Like, and that doesn't mean like work your fingers to the bone. It just means like, keep your books, keep records. Oh, also find a good parts supplier. Like we have a great part supplier who is right down the street from our, our business and they really, really take care of us. So 
And when you say a part supplier, I mean, are we, are we talking like an AutoZone or something or, or something else? Whoever, I prefer Napa. Um, I prefer Napa, CarQuest, or Advance. CarQuest and Advance are the same thing now. Um, as yeah. far as quality of parts go, CarQuest, Advance, and Napa have the highest quality part. Go get, take, get your 501c3, get your business license, get all that sort of stuff. Take it down, get a commercial account. And start buying parts from from them. Build relationships with people. Build relationships with people in the community. Build relationships with other businesses. You know, be a part of the community and ultimately be a leader in that community. And, you know, that doesn't mean hammering people over the head with ideology. It means being there when you need them. Yeah. Just to ask a little bit of a nitty gritty question here. Are you guys keeping parts like that you think are common in stock? Like say brake calipers and pad or brake, brake rotors and pads for, uh, you know, domestic Honda cars. Civic. Yeah. Or, or a Honda Civic. Is that something you guys keep in stock in your shop or are you getting parts, you know, per job? We get them delivered. We get them per job and delivered. Uh, the okay. parts supplier is literally three quarters of a mile down the street. So if they can't deliver them, we can go down and get them. It's not a got you. Nice. Got you. Okay. And I guess for the listener, if you know, if you want to start off small, I know the DSA has done uh brake light clinics in the past and uh, we might try and do something like that here in Denver uh, in the near mm-hmm. future. Um, but it's, it's basically a way to, you know, replace people's burned out light bulbs in their taillights so that they don't get pulled over by the cops uh, and get a ticket that can, you know, spiral into all kinds of terrible things with the criminal justice system. And I believe it is the New Orleans chapter. I might be wrong on that. Put out uh, like a PDF how-to guide, you know, with like how they planned for it and sort of a follow-up of how it went with like, you know, which like type of light bulbs they had to buy and how many and that kind of thing. Um, so that might be a resource for people that are wanting to get into a mutual aid project and, you know, maybe work with your local DSA chapter or PSL or whatever leftist org you have uh, nearby. So you don't have to incorporate your own uh, organization or anything. Also, if you're fixing cars, like not, not talking about brake lights, but if you're actually fixing cars, you have to have insurance. Oh yeah. If you mess up somebody's car, you, you're going to be screwed if you don't have insurance. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I think that answers one of the questions that was on that list. I was kind of like, hey, what do you, how do you handle that? Because that's a scary <laughs> thing is like, if you fuck something up, like, <laughs> that's a big deal. So, I mean, uh, we insurance. Use, it, we, we break shit from time to time and we can usually fix it. Um, but, like, you know, God forbid you leave a caliper loose, you leave a tire loose, like, you got to have insurance or you're going to end up like, breaking your entire family it's a it's a litigious society and you know it's unfortunate that it has to be this way but you know people will sue you for anything you know actually if you don't if you don't mind my asking just because again i kind of want to be a little bit um thorough on this would you mind telling us like what does that insurance look like for you guys i mean how much does that cost is that a thing because like i just want people to know ballpark what does that cost? Because I've never had to think about that in my life. Well, 
we actually have a really good insurance agent who is really takes care of us. So I'm not going to tell you how much it costs, but I'll tell you how much coverage we have. We have $2 million worth of coverage. Oh, that's great. Okay. And does that include things like, uh, do you have any kind of employee insurance, like a workman's comp coverage? No, because nobody, everybody's on stipend. Nobody's on W-2. Okay. What is okay. the what does a stipend mean? I guess is it means they, it means they get a ten ninety nine NEC, non employee compensation. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, a couple more quick questions before we wrap up here. Um, I guess broad picture, if you're looking at you know the entire American working class, what are some of the big obstacles that you see in organizing, and you know, if you're being optimistic, like what would you think um, a successful revolutionary change would look like in America right now? Uh, the number one obstacle in organizing is race, uh, without mm-hmm. a question, without question. Uh, ra- racism and bigotry and hating people or disliking people because or not trusting people because of the color of their skin is the biggest obstacle to organizing. It was designed that way in the 1600 1500s and it has worked to a charm to capitalist benefits and uh it sure has uh what i for me and it's just like i've i've said this i've said this is the third time i've said this land reform and reparations that's the political project that's what needs to happen um to tell you like alabama has the number one industry in alabama is timber um, 70% of Alabama's land is timberland. 62% of that land is absentee owned. So, wow. and wow. a lot of it is owned by hedge funds in like Manhattan. So we need land reform bad and we need reparations for black and indigenous people. So, you know, rednecks get 40 acres, black and indigenous people get 40 acres and a mule. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I guess that really puts into perspective what you're saying about the internal colony thing. Yes. If they, if it's 60% of the productive land is owned out of state, it's, it, it sounds like, uh, I don't know, Puerto Rico or something in that yeah. regard. Yeah. It's, and I'm sure it's like that all throughout the South, but I just know the research on the South on Alabama. Excuse wow. Me. Well, as we wrap up here, um, is there anything you'd like to plug? You mentioned that you have uh, a book coming out relatively soon. Not relatively soon. I'm working with a literary agent. We're in the proposal phase. Okay. Um, so it's called Redneck Liberation Theology, The Upright Men. Um, so be on the lookout for that. And also, if you would like to make a donation to the cause, uh, automotivefreeclinic.org click on how can you help okay anything else uh, that you'd like folks to be aware of uh, maybe either locally or just out in the world or are those the major ones you know um, Cornell West says he's not optimistic but he's hopeful Yeah, and, uh, I feel like I feel like that too Antonio Gramsci says pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will I feel like those are like two quotes that are very relevant to this time. So yeah, sure are. (laughs) Yeah. I'll second that. (laughs) Well, cool. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk with us. Um, I guess, do you have any uh, social media 
uh, where people can follow you also? Yeah, I'm a, a Zach Henson, AK, or Redneck Activist on uh, Twitter, which is probably the best place to follow me. Yeah, Redneck Activist on Twitter and The Mad Redneck on Instagram. Okay, great. Um, well, yeah, if you like if you like our show or the kind of shit we're doing over here, you know, we, uh, we post memes and stuff. Um, so we got a Twitter and Instagram and... One of these days we'll, we'll post on Facebook. We'll, we'll get around to it. But uh, yeah, just anywhere you can find us, we're Cars and Comrades podcast in some form or another. Use the search. We usually come up. Um, go ahead and follow us there and uh, rate and review our podcast if you like what we're doing. And again, you know, we, we appreciate uh, the mad redneck here for, for you know, wasting his uh, Sunday afternoon with us. We, we definitely do appreciate that. Yeah, very much so. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. And I appreciate y'all having me on. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good talk. Well, thanks thanks to the listener for listening, and uh, we'll be back uh, sometime in the future with a new episode. Yeah, they come out when they come out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 We gonna make you pay five and five bits. We make you pay five and water bits. We gonna fight riches and not riches, but we gonna fight the solidarity. We said we're not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight the socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues, that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation, will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.